Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. The phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is often used to describe the idea that individuals can achieve success through their own effort and hard work without relying on outside assistance. While the phrase has become a common part of American culture, the idea that success is solely determined by one's individual effort is more myth than reality. There are many factors beyond the individual's control, such as socioeconomic background, education, access to resources, that create barriers not easily overcome through effort alone. While the idea of pulling oneself up by the bootstraps may sound inspirational, it may be a bit of gaslighting. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings, everybody. We're here with somebody that I'm glad to have. I know Greg and I both enjoyed your book, Elisa. You are a remarkable writer, a very good writer, um, and have written five books of nonfiction, two books of poetry. We've actually had three poets on our uh, podcast. Uh, We had William uh, Bill Earhart, who's the Vietnam-era poet, and then a couple of the Washington State poets, and they were good. They were um, they were oh, good, great. good poetry, uh, good poetry podcasts. People don't read enough poetry. So let me just give you a little background. You've written uh, multiple books. You're executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, uh, won an Emmy, and um, I want to first of all give you condolences. You lost a dear friend, the author of uh, Nickel and Dime, that I think yes. has been a a national treasure. Tell us a little bit about um, your relationship with Barbara. Um, Barbara was uh, my, I don't know what you'd call her, but she was a very close friend. Uh Uh, When I first met her, she was somebody who I'd loved her work for many years. You know, I'd read Nickel and Dime, but I'd also read Fear Falling and some of the other books. Fear Falling is my favorite. And um, I just had... Uh, I don't know, uh, emulated her, um, right. revered her, saw her as uh, someone who was fearless and witty and fearless as a writer in terms of her right. style, fearless in her range of topics and the humor and, um, you know, moral uh, rectitude that she, she'd hate the word moral, but uh, ethical rectitude that she went after um after things that she found wanting and also that she saw popular culture as something that was available for that kind of critique, you know, which was not typical, especially in like the seventies and eighties necessarily that that someone writing for time magazine would take, um, you know, political, uh, uh, find political meaning in things like uh, midwives or in cancer care, the way that it was sort of, a commercialized cancer care. She wrote a book about that called Bright Sided. So yeah, so she meant that. And then when I met her, uh, uh, she, we had this incredible talk. And then I sort of started building up the organization with her around 10 years ago. She totally changed my life. I mean, she is, uh, she was, a, uh, I don't know, uh, people say mentor. I, I say sort of more like a spouse because we we sort of begot this this whole organization mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. so we were talked every day for many years and we had all these people in common that we were 
writers we were developing, uh, funders that were supporting us, and like a, and a whole audience and a, and a worldview that we shared. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you're a rich person to have such a dear friend, and uh, yeah, and I, I, and your writing is is a lot like her. I mean, with nickel and dime, she would actually embed herself in very low income jobs and just express to people how difficult these lives are for people, and that's sort of a general theme of your book, book, book bootstrapping, uh, liberating ourselves from the American dream, and you. You are you you take on a a problem that uh, or a theme that people just need to you know suck it up and work hard and the American dreams there and what's the problem and everybody can achieve it and and you look carefully at that and say that might not that might be a myth. <laughs> Is it, yeah. I, I expressing that correctly? Absolutely. I mean, it's a myth in the sense that it's. Um you know, it was initially when it was coined in 1931, it was our American dream and it's become my American dream. So it's even a myth on its own terms. Like if we think about what the American dream is, it's sort of been, uh, I say bastardized or deformed into something that is something that can only happen behind closed doors, you know, in a family or within, within an individual, uh, individual's biography. It's not something that happens for groups. It's not something that happens, uh, for uh, communities, for um, uh, it's it, it. There's a misunderstanding of merit that's involved with it and opportunity. I think, and also, I think it's a cudgel now that people use to blame themselves. Like, oh, you've been given this opportunity. You, we can all access the American dream. You know, well, we can't actually. So I think once people know that there's limits on their limits to how much of that dream they could actually just easily obtain. My hope is with a book like this and with other work out there right now, people can stop uh, judging themselves when things don't fall into place for them as easily as they would hope or as what they were promised, you know? And and your 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 book deals with different people that we all think the Horatio Alger story, just, you know, come on, young fellow, you you can make it, or the Ayn Rand uh, story, or the... Uh, Little House on the Prairie story of just the individuals that can make it on their own. I, I don't know if you have followed, uh, do you follow uh, Heather Cox Richardson? Yeah, it's a, I love her. Um, uh, you know, yeah. she was she, she was talking exactly like you were with the story of Little House on the Prairie, that these people go out to the West and they're independent and they're hardworking and they don't rely on the government. And she had a wonderful lecture of saying, that this was the largest land transfer of wealth transfer probably in the world in giving people all this land on the West that we, you know, had to kill native uh, indigenous people for. And that uh, the, the, the culmination of the book where they're trying to send the young girl off to college, they're trying to scrape together money to get her a train ticket to, to go to college. They didn't mention that college was completely subsidized and free. <laughs> and, yeah. And that, so tell us a little bit about, uh, let's start with that. Start with the little house on the prairie and, and what we, what our image of that is and what the actual reality of the, the story is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I was very inspired by uh, Prairie Fires, which was a biography of her that I got some of my understanding of her from. And obviously from reading the book itself and watching the show 
and you know reading a lot of like secondary material like thing responses from readers about this because uh you know a lot of people got the same message from little house that i did as a child and my daughter was starting to which is was the impetus for writing this which is you know uh we we, we can all do it ourselves there's this um rugged individualism that's possible um you know that actually it's almost like a childhood dream just you and your parents you know in the prairie in this totally simplified society um with more like clear uh, moral poles and um uh dad is like omnipowerful can can you know uh easily uh you know plant crops you know cook kill game whatever the heck like you know do all the things that men were did on the in the prairies back then but the truth of the matter is First of all, um, Laura Ingalls Wilder had intended these books as uh, an attack on Franklin Delano Roosevelt and of, uh, in, in, in favor of his predecessor, Herbert Hoover, who was very conservative and actually uh, used, either coined or used frequently the term rugged individualism and you know, wanted to support this kind of um, conservative libertarian position, as did her daughter. And saw these books they were so i called the chapter little house of propaganda because it really seeps into children's minds this idea that like you know yeah like my daughter's reading this thing you know starts to like want to build a tp you know this is all, you know, super problematic obviously um you know i wanted to be uh, us to be ma and pa for halloween and she'd be laura and uh and, and it was sort of i realized it that the hidebound individualism was being drilled in through these books and through the show with Michael Landon that was, and you know, what was being suppressed was this land giveaway, incredible land giveaway that these uh, folks got. And that's why they were able to exist on the prairie, uh, et cetera. But also that those, that land had been stolen from the Indians, uh, indigenous people. And then also that they were terrible farmers. I mean, if you look at the biography, Pa could not farm to save his skin and basically he had to get his neighbors to help him plant and so he was deeply interdependent just as a person so there's like it was it was propaganda it was propaganda on many levels and then the second version that comes out in the 80s is the television show is like almost a to me it seemed like uh i twinned it in my mind with uh reagan mm-hmm. michael landon sort of looked like reagan had the ranch the, the sort of bronze skin the um, she, you know, bright smile, the kind of um, like actorly obsession, a cowboy obsession with seeming, again, like completely independent, you know, and extremely white, right? <laughs> and uh, imperial in there, you know, like just like Reagan. And um, I thought, wow, this is like this vision of 80s America as well, as well as the, 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 written in the 1940s about an earlier period still so yeah i i guess this was what i wanted to do i wanted to bust these myths um i had started to read backwards seeing them as plaguing me from childhood well me too created this reckoning i think around um texts like woody allen or philip roth right like like oh you know there's this sort of masculine gaze and this like really often kind of bizarre way that women are represented I was like, there's a really bizarre way that humans are represented (laughs) in some of these classic books, you know, and like what human experience is, uh, who we should be. And it's not not coincidentally, it's a pretty masculine ideal also. And it's, again, very Caucasian. So I think that is um, this new reading uh, fervor gripped me. And I was like, spent a lot of the pandemic reading these books that I'd liked as when I was a young person, a child 
and then in graduate school, Emerson Thoreau, and I was like, I cannot read this anymore without feeling like I have to spread the gospel of interdependence and like, you know, break these things down. I, I I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a little bit ticked off at you because uh, my uh, email address is life of desperation. <laughs> And which is yeah. will, which is the Henry David Thoreau quote: "The mass of men leave lives of quiet desperation, <laughs> yeah, which you know observes the empty life, unfulfilled work, not enough leisure time, too much emphasis on money, and and I oh, I just loved that they you know they uh, that was just really captured it. But but you then told me that he wasn't just this kind of Zen Buddhist guy out in his out in his cabin. His mom did his laundry, and I I don't know." <laughs> tell, tell me why I'm bummed out about about my email address after you did an expose of uh of yeah well Walden you know, and da Henry David Thoreau. He had friend. I mean, there's a, even a line in Walden where I had or like in his diary from the time I, I forget if it was in Walden or in a diary that where he said I had an, uh, stools for conversation. So he had like guests coming over uh, during the writing of Walden. He was not uh, the man alone, right? And the only reason that the biography is brought in in, in these in these in this section of the book, because as somebody who reads literature seriously, you're not supposed to like bring the biography, and that's like you're supposed to just read the text, and ah, uh, the text will let you know, you know, it's kind of. But uh, you know, yes, Thoreau, the, you know, is on Chipotle bags or whatnot, Emory, you know, on mugs. These are public figures. They've also he, used the, you know, Thoreau used his own life. He's a memoirist, basically. So, but fair game. Let's let's go after Thoreau. Let's like look at the, look at this book and see how independent he actually was. And no, he, he was not. You know, he was dependent on Emerson. He was dependent on his circle, dependent on his mother, dependent on his friends who came over. Um, you know, I I happen to love Thoreau, but I also, you know, he was an actual abolitionist and had um, great politics and. That was part of what was painful about it, though. I had to reread it as like, oh, this person had actually did spread this, uh, a very literary version of this sort of toxic rhetoric at at one point, and and the discomfort I felt in when I was graduate school in literature and in college reading it, I I now I, I now like look backwards and I thought, oh, this is why I was uncomfortable, because I recognized as a young woman, without great means, that I would not be able to live this life. You know, there was a sort of recognition that there's something preventing me from idealizing him, you know, and this was, this was what it was. Greg, what do you think? Well, I, I, I love this kind of cultural critique. I think it's so important. I really, I think that we're in a time where that really uh, hits the nail on the head for people. They really have to examine where they got their ideas from. And of course, I'm, I'm part of the television generation. I guess the first part of the television generation. And so I nostalgia wise, I go back and I watch a lot of old westerns and television westerns, Wyatt Earp and et cetera, et cetera. I just kind of drawn to that because I grew up with it. But looking back, I see the cultural influence upon me. You know, the, the the cowboy, male cowboy riding into town, always on a horse, which is a surrogate for a car. You know, the individualism behind that, and the open range, which you know means there's no limit to what people can have and own and and the 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 radical individualism of of the hero who always tackles mm -hmm. these these social problems or problems are not really social problems in his mind um and, and you just see how insidious it is i mean it's just something you grow up with in your 
not really aware of it until you reflect back upon it uh, years later. So for, for, for this country today, that kind of cultural critique is just so critical that you're, that you're engaged in. And I, I might add, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty profound because it goes back even to Thomas Jefferson and the quote unquote founding fathers. I mean, really the, the essence of, uh, of, of this country was yeoman farmer that could just pick up and when times were tough, uh, couldn't make a living there, move on, move down the road and, 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 and do it again. So radical individualism is just so profoundly, so deeply uh, encrusted in the way we look at the world today. So I really appreciate you know, your work for that reason. I think that's really, really critical today. Yeah, I mean, I thought also during the pandemic, I mean, I hadn't intended this book exists, but during the pandemic, it became really clear to me that the uh, way we were thinking about ourselves, um, or I was thinking about myself and people, uh, you know, Americans generally sort of um, these incredible studies, you know, Republicans, sometimes 40%, sometimes 60% who say, you know, people are poor because they don't work hard. Um, and, uh, you know, putting the blame squarely back on individuals, other individuals, a lot of blame. We can, you know, look at the very existence of Tucker Carlson as an example <laughs> that he ever existed and had this much power as an example of this untrammeled uh, individualism and thirst for power of some groups, right? Thirst for dominance. Um, why would they fear sort of replacement if they didn't think that they were supposed to have total power, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I the pandemic opened my eyes also about how mutual and dependent we really are. I mean, it, more than I even had thought going into this book. Like I thought going into this book that I was going to write a, you know, critique about social class and about you know more more tempered, you know, like and less literary. And but I started to read this work, and I was like, gosh, this starts at the root. Like this is, and Trump, the root of Trump's lies are that he's lies he self-made it's just like this story is actually at the root of all these other lies that have contaminated a lot of different kind of institutions and you know yeah so you you, you have to tell uh, i'm an old researcher you have to tell us more about that that story of the people that interviewed the trump supporters and how important their belief that he was just a self-made guy. He got a little loan from his dad and he ended up making so much money that he, he was quoted as saying, at times I get, I'm getting bored at how much money I'm making. I mean, you know, and that, so tell us the study, the the uh, research study that kind of dealt with that and how how powerful that um, myth was in, in, in uh, showing his support, showing support for him. Yeah, I really wanted to find out more about this because I didn't want to just have this one-sided account, you know, like progressive account where I'm just like talking to um, people crushed by the, the bootstrapping dream or liberating themselves and like not talking about the people who really believe in it because I wanted to understand. So I talked to people who were uh, quite avid Trump supporters um, and, you know, often they had a a fear of loss, right? They were afraid of loss of their own, usually just middle-class standing. I mean, they were holding on to being middle-class, you know, what, 70 to 100,000 they made. I mean, 100,000 is a lot in a lot of places, but not in others. Um, and that was the impetus. But the other impetus was that he was self-made. They believed that he was this 
guy who became prosperous and they too could become prosperous and or stay prosperous if they held on to his coattails. And then I found this study that and I talked to the researchers who did it, where they interviewed Trump's supporters and other Republicans uh, in 2018. And they, they, the people said that they were voting him for him because they believed he was self-made. A, a large number of the voters said that. And then they the researchers laid out the ways in which he was not. They said, oh, he got this, this loan. He hasn't paid his taxes. You know, he's, um, you know, has it's all inherited. Um, this is how it functions, you know. Bankruptcies. Bankruptcies, you know, like either government subsidized or family subsidized wealth. And um, 10%, uh, they were 10, 10% were less li likely to think favorably about a candidate after they learned this. This is just this study. I mean, I think they repeated the results a few times, but I was like, wow, maybe we need to be spreading this word and spreading it not just on our, you know, in these shows, right? But like further afield, the puncturing the self-made myth. Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of Democrats also use the Horatio Alger story for their own ends, like yeah. boy from Scranton or whatever. And so I think what would be better would be to try to kind of, undo the entire myth because then we're if we give stop giving it this kind of power um we have a chance of replacing it with something more realistic and relatable um and optimistic and community oriented you know I, obviously a lot of biden's slogans around this kind of thing like build better back better or whatever better together all this kind of stuff but i think um some of the individual po political storytelling is still very centered on you know i escaped this um, you know, uh, you know, troubling childhood, and now I've made it, and I'm, and many of them are right. Fifty-one percent of our representatives are millionaires or above. So, I think this is kind of a problem, though. This story. I mean, I think this is the story has give, given room for Trump and other you, people. You, it's kind of interesting that this works because people are doing badly. I mean, when you when you look at it. You say, how can how can people buy in on these TV preachers who are saying, believe in yourself and do this and do that and and you'll you'll be successful? It trades on the fact that people are doing well. I mean, underneath the floor, the people that are hearing this message aren't doing that well in America, mm -hmm. and this serves to kind of keep them from looking in the right places, finding the right answers for their problems. Yeah, but, but I think does, I mean the the average. The average Trump supporter, though, makes $71,000 a year. I mean, they're not, I think that's one of these things. Like, I think they, yes, there are people who are struggling, um, but I think a lot of them are kind of afraid of loss, you know, whatever the loss right. means, loss of, right. you know, hegemonic white power, right? But also loss of middle-class identity, you know, like maybe they'll tip over and they'll be joining their cousins and, you know, some place where they escape from. So there's like that kind of sensibility too um, when you when you talk to people. Tell me another. Um, uh, I was unaware of uh, Horatio Alger. You know that's a that's another bootstrapping myth. Boy, he he's a real Horatio Alger story. He came from rags to riches, and <laughs> and um, I I knew Horatio Alger. Kind of wrote some books that were silly books about these people making it, but. There's a backstory to Horatio Alger, uh, which is kind of interesting. T tell us about him. Yeah, so Horatio Alger was a uh, the son of a minister in Brewster, Massachusetts, and then he 
himself became a minister in, in Brewster, Massachusetts. He was very short in stature. He was like five two. Um, I don't know if that's apropos of anything, <laughs> but he um, but he uh, he actually uh, was found uh, to have committed pedophilic acts against two boys in his church and sort of chased out of the church. Basically, that's what the the record shows. And you know, his father did some deal, let him slink away. His father had been a powerful you know man in the town. And then he, you know, what I love is that he then became a writer. This was his penance. So then he becomes, <laughs> becomes a writer and nobody knows that he had committed these crimes. And he's um, as a best-selling writer about boys. They're books about teenagers Gro modeled on- Grooming young boys basically to he be is successful. A, yeah, he, yeah. yeah, I mean, was, I mean, the paradox is, you know, the people who are most obsessed with Horatio Alger's stories are probably sympathetic to this idea of all these groomers out there, right? Like the, like, you know, kind of the conservative QAnon types, right? And there's an actual groomer who, <laughs> who coined their favorite term. It's, you can't make this stuff up. And so, you know, he would go on the Bowery and he'd find these boys and he adopted two of them, two like orphans Whoa. on the Bowery. Uh, yeah, and then all his books were the stories of these kind of boys, and they're not really the stories that people have come to believe Horatio Alger stories are. I mean, people think, oh, Horatio Alger story is a story of somebody, luck and pluck. That was what one person put it. Luck, you know, little Timmy, little, you know, Richard, there's other um, uh, Tony, Pete, you know, Paul the Peddler, right there, these teen boys work their butts off, become you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class wealthy. No, they meet a wealthy man who takes a shine to them and they're very handsome. <laughs> and it's like a completely different story. And so, I mean, they, they are hardworking, but that's not why they succeed. And so I, I, I feel, you know, I thought it was just fascinating. And oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's like Jane Austen or something. Like, uh, you no, know, they yeah. marry, they marry well in a sense, but, and I guess the sympathetic reading would be like, he couldn't be open about the fact that these are kind of queer or gay stories so instead it becomes this rags to riches story because they can't have the driver be the interest in these of these older men and these young boys right that can't yeah. be how it happens so it has to be this other story now we know that up in power is transmitted through you know male power networks right so this is right right ironically he's actually telling the story of more of how power actually has operated through nepotism through you know uh, kind of oh, priming, pri yeah, priming young men, kind of corrupt, uh, corrupt emotional connections, you know, all this kind of thing. So Men mentoring, I, men mentoring, but like that's yeah. So anyway, it, it just yeah. So obviously, I mean, in that case, he was not sort of a fake, self-made person, but he was somebody for whom the self-made story accrued to him because he had this terrible lie at the center of his own biography that also is the lie of many of his stories. Like his stories don't run on the motor that people say they run on. So that that was really interesting. Um, and he, he's a terrible writer. So that was, it was just like, what? How did this person sell a million copies a year? I just, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, you, are, are you a, you're, you're a journalist. You're a good writer though. I mean, you, the way in which you tell stories that, I think that's why I read, I, I binged your book yeah. because you you tell such good stories. Are you a journalist by by mm -hmm. college, or are you a, are you a literature 
I major? was a literature person. Yeah, I mean, that's oh, part of, but okay. like, I, and I loved fiction and I loved, I was studying poetry. I was also a poet. So, okay, uh, there you go. So okay. that doesn't make you a good storyteller. <laughs> well, but it, also, it just- It makes you it, a bad storyteller. <laughs> Yeah. It, you tell good stories is what I mean. You 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 really engage the po- you know you're good you're a good storyteller. So. Oh, thank you very much. But yeah, so this the I I mean yeah, part of what I realized is that most people who write on literature don't necessarily do also do investigative reporting. So I was like, oh, I could actually sort of combine these two abilities <laughs> in one book. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what mm-hmm. I've I've always tried to do. You know. Hey Greg, did you know about the um the W. E. Du Bois Black Co-ops and all of those that was mentioned in the book. Were you aware of that? Of the importance of communities kind of helping people cooperatively, almost you know, almost in a socialist uh, network. Were you were you aware yeah, well, of that? Yeah, that that's that, that's a big part of Du Bois in terms of you know how he looked at uh, a black life. I mean, that's 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 important. Yeah, because the, you know that's part of the bootstrapping myth, is you just pull yourself up, and when you look at our well, history, our history, with, we tended to be very cooperative. It was always we, the contrast, always the contrast with Booker T. Washington, which that's the kind of black version of that of, of of bootstrapping was Booker T. Washington, who thought that black capitalism could be could achieve the gains, and you know that the 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 uh, uh, folks could could advance in that fashion. It essentially was a self-help kind of approach from Booker T. Washington, and Du Bois was opposed to that. Broadly speaking, he was opposed to that. Yeah, and that was- yeah so Du Bois, did you know, du Bois the, the mutual aid, um, so I have a chapter, the last third of my book is called Towards a New American Dream. And so I, you know, yeah. often in these kind of books, you're supposed to have like this optimistic yeah. section. You know, and you kind of hanging on at the end. You go, okay, and here's the one solution. Okay, I'm out. But I just got sort of swept away by the solutions because I felt like, again, like I was sort of doing this literary investigative reporting, and I was like, I didn't know about, I didn't know that Du Bois had written these these monographs about mutual aid. He'd gone and like systematically gone through the mutual aids, like little mutual aids in the early 20th century. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, in late 19th, and I think late 19th, early 20th, um, and uh also that uh i was also interested to see that darwin had been a key influence to the idea of mutual aid it was something again that i was like this is interesting who knew this yeah because know. you think it's just like hey you don't make it then you know screw you die and someone else will you know survival yeah, 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 but, no. but he viewed he viewed the idea of co-op- cooperation and support as having an evolutionary <laughs> uh, lifting of of the society, and I, mm-hmm. that, I I didn't know anything. I didn't know that. That was no, a, me neither. Was great... And then there's these there's these people called socialist Darwin Darwinists. I was like, this is very cool. That social Darwin. It, so it also shows to me like how ideas again get bastardized in the other way, right? Where you have an idea like the you know Darwin's thought that then gets grabbed in his case by these social Darwinists like Huxley, like not. Uh, um, not Brave New World Huxley, mm-hmm. but I think it's some other relation. And there are a lot of other kind of British toffs who like grabbed his ideas and turned them into this like almost eugenic, very like unpleasant version of Darwinism, that social Darwinism. It's actually kind of anti-social Darwinism. And then 
Meanwhile, there's this whole other section of Darwin or another reading of his work where he talked about things like mutual sympathy and how all the animals and uh, plants that were in parasite plants in relationship to non-parasite plants and um, birds and bugs and ants and just like this kind of totally uh, cooperative uh, worldview here with like mutual mutual sympathy is what he called it. Uh, that was it's not red in tooth and claw it's the opposite and so I, I was like okay so it, it's like the wrong strand <laughs> had won the, the, the Darwin story really and um, that interested me too. You know we we uh, Greg and I come from the left he's a little more left than I am but we're definitely left and we have a lot of criticisms about capitalism and how by its very nature it has a tendency to transfer wealth to very few and make a lot of people's lives miserable. And you dealt with that in your gig economy uh, part of that and, and the adjunct professors and uh, that even though these people are, are, are struggling, the system by its very nature is going in the wrong direction to give them a self-actualized good quality, quality life is is part of bootstrapping just a propaganda mechanism by these uh, uh, horrible capitalists in the back room conniving to figure out how to make more money and and suppress people's resistance to that? Or, or, or is, that, is that a little silly? Yeah, I think it is ideological. I think the bootstrapping story is one that's been used um, to inspire people um, to work harder to strive to blame themselves when they don't make it um it is part of a theme that kind of perpetuates this myth that um it is a myth it's it's not true that um you just need to work hard always and you, you'll be able to elevate yourself so talk and and talk about that i this is it's kind of great that you are related to cobblers and that <laughs> who made boots and yeah. that this whole idea of bootstrapping, which again, I didn't know this was always kind of a, it was a farce. People knew it. It was like, Oh, just learn to code and you'll be fine. Oh, just, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll be fine. It was never viewed as something serious it was viewed as kind of a, kind of a sarcastic expression. Yeah, it was viewed as something like uh, laughable Right. It was coined in 1834, um, uh, and it was used to describe this inventor. He was like Nimrod Murphy, and it's like, oh, he could climb the, you know, cross the river by his, pull himself up by his boot. That he was a kind of quixotic, foolish town fool of some sort, you know, that like an inventor in the town, like an eccentric inventor, and that they used this to like mock him, this phrase. And then, then in later uh, newspapers, they also Racine, Wisconsin newspaper, they also talked about. Another person was called pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, and it was also like a, a form of mockery. And so, um, yeah. And then over time, I'm telling you, these things migrate and shift, and like language and and idioms are almost like cellular in that way. They're like a kind of DNA, and they they start to erode or corrode or co-opted. So that is what happened with that term. And yeah, as you mentioned earlier, it it became this way that I think people, that form of social control. So if you think you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then you're always the one who's not able to do it. 
And it's a great metaphor in the sense that you literally cannot do it. So that uh, it's one of those like American dream metaphors that um, time auto-destruct, the metaphor auto-destructs because right. it's an impossible metaphor to enact. They've pushed it to the point where today and in, in today's culture, it's commodified so that you have all these self-help, everything from diets to anti-racism is commodified. So you, you have a book or a, a, a CD or a, a link that you can go to and find a way, pay for it, of course, to make yourself better, to improve yourself, to make your fortunes in life better. If you talk about some of that, I mean, that commodification of self-help that's so prevalent in everything. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, one of the things with uh, kind of, uh, I wanted to include the girl boss phenomenon because that to me was like the self-made, the feminized version of these kind of bootstrapping thing, you know, so girl bosses emerged in like, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago as like this icon that you corporate women and CEO women and C-suites, oh, you're supposed to, um, you know, have it all, um, you, you can succeed on your own. Um, here's the bootstrap mantle. I'm thinking there's, and there, it's very much what you're saying. It's, it's a commodity. There's books like lean in, you know, um, where Sheryl Sandberg said, you know, I continue to be alarmed, not just at how we as women fail to put ourselves forward, but also at how we fail to notice and correct for this gap. So it's putting ordinary readers self-doubt um, shaming them for it and then like making millions selling them a book shaming them <laughs> and then and then there was a book by someone named Rachel Hollis it was a huge bestseller girl wash your face and mm -hmm. one of her one of her phrases I absolutely refuse to watch you wallow um there are brands women ran brands like things like the wing which is a chain of social workspaces or a uh yell aflalo it's a clothing line called reformation um you know, that's sought to be the coolest girls on your Instagram feed. And it was all, again, this like singular founder who, uh, you know, was encouraging people to, you know, in, in their various media that they could make it on their own and they could be like them. And, and, and one put, person puts this, calls this a feminist fallacy. It's like the idea that just because a handful of these women were able to, um, you know, achieve parity, um, that somehow translates into everyone being able to do it. And that, that's part of what happens when they keep dispensing their messages, like anybody can do this. Um, and also, I mean, if you look at the Fortune uh, 400 numbers, uh, heiresses are the majority of them. So it's like the Walton women or women of Walmart that are on the Fortune 400 list. Um, that's whereas, yeah, 11 self-made women made that list at all. So this, this idea of the girl boss is really beyond exceptional. Which again doesn't mean that they shouldn't be an inspiration, whatever. But you want this inspiration to be delivered without punishment and with an understanding of how much, how much work there's left to do, and it's not just around gender; it's around class well, and these, race. The, these yeah. these myths act as a gaslighting to what the real problem is. Um, you, did you see the uh, Howard Schultz and Bernie Sanders standoff at the when he testified before mm -hmm. Congress? That no, was he's the head of yeah. head of Starbucks, and he's just I I grew up in the projects. I worked hard, you know, 
don't be mad at me because I'm so bright and successful and innovative and I made a lot of money and that's fine. And God, I, I just wanted to throw something at the television. You know, I, it's, um, first of all, he's my age. And, I, you know, when I went to college, I, I paid $33 a quarter to go to college. I had scholarships. I you mm -hmm. know, Tell me about student loan now. I, you know, I, I had health insurance. I, I could buy a house without very much support from family. I was, I don't know. It just, it goes back to that whole bootstrapping thing that, that we are, if you just work hard and, um, and are smart, you'll be able to make it. And what's the problem? You know, but also uh, the student debt thing seemed to really was very much in keeping with the bootstraps, um, matrix or whatever because it was like uh debt loan forgiveness hell no even though none of it would affect the people who were enraged that their loans hadn't been forgiven like they were angry that other people might act younger people <laughs> might actually have decent lives and i felt like what where is this coming from and it's again it's this punishment like um you haven't made it you're on snap um you know you've somehow failed me personally like i i don't know you're it's a sort of personalization on both sides whereas if you look at how much college education costs and i mean i'm thinking about this you know my daughter's 12 like what are we going to do right like yeah that's why we're i think the last number was 1.75 trillion in debt um in in, in in you know college related debt and um that the debt forgiveness is horrifying to people because they will only want um they believe in the deserving, the deserving victors and the undeserving victims. So if you're a debtor, college debtor, you must have done something. And I think that's that's the fallacy again that you're asking about bootstraps. That that is very efficient way to separate classes, interests, um, keep people down. You know, so instead of being like, oh, I was in debt and I suffered, I don't want you to be in debt, or I paid all my loans with a terrible job, I don't want you. 26 year old to be in that position it's like no you have to suffer as i did um there's something wrong with you if you're in debt at all you know it's like a very oppositional mindset well that and, was your that was one of the themes of your book before this squeeze yeah. that these people they start taking on what did i do wrong i you know i ended up getting sick i have horrible mm -hmm. medical debt i'm going bankrupt it's my fault you know it's it's my fault that i got pancreatic cancer you know that i you know somehow you know and um and that just helps perpetuate the system so uh, yeah and i mean i think you know the thing that i found very moving is yeah it's 1.75 trillion in 2020 by the end of 2021 in, in outstanding student debt in america um but uh the, there's a woman in the book sissy white uh christine white who just by the way passed away um she had ovarian cancer over the course of the book she was diagnosed and died um but she, she was an incredible person because she'd grown up in extreme, extreme poverty, abusive family. Uh, and one of the things she said, she said, resilience means well-resourced because everyone kept saying, you're so resilient, Sissy. You, you went to, you're the first person to go to college. You are, she became a counselor, like therapeutic counselor um, and had a kind of quasi middle-class life. And, you know, even when she had ovarian cancer, she was still helping people and you know involved in medical uh research you know was was the best possible citizen at all times right so people were like oh you must be an exception you must be the talented tenth right and she said no i'm you know being resilient is just being well resourced 
which I thought was just an incredible phrase, you know, because we talk about people having to be gritty and resilient, but her po whole point is, you know, it wasn't luck that made her resilient, but it was, you know, a complex set of factors, uh, some of which was that she actually, her, I mean, it, it, her own biography, her mother married a middle-class guy, she, so she lived in a different town, was exposed to different things, you know, so she was not going to be the one to be like that. I am this story of self-making of, um, and again, this is again, back to these storylines, if only more American politicians would be able to say that and say it publicly. And I've been heartened when there are politicians who say, you know, I don't have that much money, you know, or I've benefited from the system, you know, uh, I guess they're worried about, as it happened with Obama, when he was like, if you're standing on a bridge, somebody made this. And remember how that. Right, that, right. Why, well, but I, I think it's the times have changed and maybe we should start, you know, using this kind of language again. Yeah. I, you know, I worked in a school district, the largest, third largest school district in, in Washington state. And it's uh, Tacoma had, has lot, has great wealth in parts of the district. Parts of the district have, 97% of the kids are on free and reduced lunch. And they have laundries in the school because kids don't have the ability to wash their clothes. They wash their clothes for them in the school. And they have supplemental breakfast because they just they wouldn't have breakfast. You know, they have free and reduced lunch. They have free and reduced breakfast. And until you see that level of poverty, until you see uh, one of the principals said, uh, you know, these families are just one flat tire away from being evicted. The, the flat tire means they can't get to the job and then they're fired and they lose their, you know, it's that, it's that level of poverty uh, that it, 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 you have a different perception. And there's a lot of people in the, in this book that you're talking about, the percentage of people that are just, just a, you know, a couple of paychecks away from not making it. That's how, you know, that, that's how much, how difficult it is. And you've got that feeling and, of course, nickel and dime, and some of the other other books. So I, I don't know. You did. You're doing just such a good, just uh, such good service with the your writing and the themes that you take on. Uh, you're just wonderful. I want you to keep doing it. Oh, thank you so much. And and I also encourage people to look at the site of the organization that Barbara and I created. It's called the Economic Hardship Project. I'll make, I'll make Economic a link Hardship to that. Reporting Project at economichardship.org is our site and econ hardship is our twitter handle and you can see like a whole bunch of stories on there by people like um people who've experienced homelessness people who've experienced right. um uh unemployment snap um opioid addiction you name it and like what it takes to really survive and what they learn from it and also a lot of people who just are reporters and the economy's contracted. And so we we're supporting them to keep this kind of, you know, feature writing alive as well. So now are you, are you connect, stuff. are you connected with Ray Suarez's podcast? Yes. That's my podcast. Yeah. I produced that. I, oh, holy crap. I, I was, uh, I was, as I, in preparation for this, I was at the gym and I heard that and I, 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 I uh, did one of it. It's well done. Oh, Ray's, thank you. Ray's wonderful. He's thank a you. I produced that. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it. Oh, I wrote and produced it. It's my idea. Not, I did not yeah. know that. Okay, Going I'm gonna broke. link. I'll link to. I'll link yeah, to. Yeah. So that's also another. Ray Suarez is our one. One of my peeps, and I've been. You know, he shaped my thinking. He said this amazing thing. He said, uh, "It shouldn't be just the rich 
doing work, uh, writing, shouldn't be the rich writing for the middle class about the poor. Uh, and I see our job at EHRP is to like dis to rearrange that relationship. So it's like poor people, middle class people writing about their own experience, reporting in general, not just people with bird's eye view reporting on what's going on in America, you know? Um, so yeah. Go, going for broke is the mm -hmm. name of the podcast. Yeah, it's very exactly. good. Thank you. I, I knew you were connected, but I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. That's that. So yeah. <laughs> any final actually, thoughts? Any final thoughts? Oh, go ahead. Um, oh, yeah, no. Um, but Ray is a really great example because, you know, he, I mean, and maybe you can even use a snippet of the show in this. That would be great. Um, he lost his footing professionally because there's a lot of ageism in media, especially like broadcast news and things like that. So he's in his 60s. He couldn't get hired. He got, um, he got cancer. He uh, also had this accident and hurt his mouth and a bike accident and he didn't have dental care and so that was he felt like he was falling through it was called the sinking feeling he wrote a piece for me that we published in washington post because we co-publish and that people really responded to that piece they so were like, he was a, a, a prominent journalist always on pbs and then you're saying he ended up mm -hmm. hitting some real rough times yeah real rough times and so I see part Holy of what molly. EHRP was able to do was we gave him this platform and shaped work around him. And, you know, he's, I see him as like a spokesperson for us kind of, you know, because a lot of the people that we help, um, yeah, they had whole careers. They were newspaper reporters for 20 years, 30 years, uh, and they, something went wrong. And, you know, there isn't that super structure anymore to protect them. So, yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I learned something every day. Any thoughts, Greg, before we wrap up? No, I enjoyed this very much. I think uh, it's it's great work you're doing. And uh, uh, thank you for coming on and, and sharing this with us. So anyway, thank you for being on our podcast. It's wonderful. Uh, we'll do the links to your book and different organizations and just keep up doing the good work. Thanks oh, for thank chatting with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.